Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, for your great love for all people, as we've just been reminded. We would pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what your Spirit has to say to us today from this passage. In thy name we ask it. Amen. There is within all of us a sense to be more than we are. This sense is so universal to humanity and such a driving force in us that it causes us to seek ways in which we can become more. As I was preparing the message, I did a web search titled Human Potential, and hundreds of sites came up representing everything from teaching your baby how to read and advance beyond other babies to uh, having a better life through unpronounceable Eastern mystic approaches to the whole new field of nanotechnology. There were numerous sites that were psychology-based, many others that were health-based, others sought to catalog patterns of world problems. There were psychics and kooks as well. And the unifying theme of all of this was that each site was somehow focused on the need for humanity to be more than we are. And all of us can probably relate to this in some way or another in various stations of life. As children, we may be full of dreams of, well, what will we be when we grow up? And along the way, we discover, well, there are some things that I'm good at, and there are some other things I'm not so good at. And we make choices to help us go in the direction of our successes. We graduate from high school and are faced with big decisions about responsibility and freedom and life direction and education or no education and we might be fearful about making a mistake because we think okay what if I spend four or five years of post high school education and uh, accumulate a lot of debt getting a degree only to discover that it kind of doesn't seem to fit our circumstances as well as I'd hoped that it would. We may focus on different kinds of ideas of what success means, from money to prestige to making a meaningful contribution to society to leadership to just being a good soldier, only to discover that when we get to our definition of success, we remain unfulfilled. We might marry thinking they'll that will bring happiness and fulfillment. And we discover, you know, we married someone who's very different than we thought that they were. And, and now what will we do? We, we may have children and have hopes and dreams for them, and they'll choose another direction. And all of these kinds of things impact us for our sense of significance or well-being or worth or accomplishment. And many people come to a place in life where the realities they assess tell them you know, they could have been more or they should have done more. We all want to live large and be in charge, you know? So why do most people live smaller than they had dreamed? Is this even a question we should be asking? You see, I believe Christians are destined to live a life larger than the average person. I believe it's part of the promise of John 10.10. 10. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus speaking, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or have it abundantly. So what does this 
full life look like in practice? And why is it that even many Christians who've trusted Christ as their Savior do not live a life that they would define as an experience of a full life? I think there are three basic reasons that people's lives are smaller and less fulfilling than they could be. Uh, it, it's that they do not have a life experience that's filled with vision and value and victory. And I want to examine that for a few minutes, and then I want to show from our text how we can have those things. So why do people live smaller lives than they could? Well, one reason many people live small lives is because they lack vision. And by this I do not mean that everyone must be a visionary, but everyone must have some kind of a sense of a goal orientation, a place that you want to get to from where you are. You need a sense of a path to travel in your life journey. The, this no vision factor uh, we can see from Scripture there are reasons for it. One is, is a lack of revelation. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Another version says, Where there's no vision, the people perish. The idea is this. Revelation or vision comes from God, our Creator. God gives direction for life, and without any authoritative direction for life, without any revelation of what life is about, people don't know what to do with any sense that it'll lead somewhere. In our current culture, we've chosen to see the world of values as all relative. It's called cultural relativism. The Bible had a period of time like this that's described in the book of Judges. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's kind of the way people live today. Everybody just kind of does what's right in their own eyes. So if I'm my own highest authority, then that puts upon me alone the responsibility to make justice happen in the world around me. The reality is that it'll be impossible for me alone to make justice happen under such a system in the culture because others will choose different standards for justice for themselves and I don't get to control them. And as a result, I lose hope. And when I lose hope, I become cynical. And when I become cynical, I don't really care what happens to the others or myself. I cast off any self-discipline or restraint that would even allow me to continue to operate justly. The whole culture falls apart, and my life has no direction to which I would discipline it. This is the case for a whole generation in our culture. Sometimes there's no vision because there's a lack of a believable promise. A second component of vision is a believable promise. If we have a believable promise upon which we can base our hopes and actions, we can use that to give us vision. The promise that most people in America have is what we call the American dream. The American dream promise is something like this. Well, you can be anything you want to be. You can achieve anything you set your mind upon because you have liberty in the United States of America. But a promise must be based upon a power that is connected to that promise to be able to deliver upon the promise. Usually the American dream promise in our culture is connected to one of two power formulas. One is the power of education. You get the right education, you can be anything you want to be. The other power we look to is hard work. You know, if you work hard and find the good opportunity, you can be anything you want to be. 
Those are powers. The problem with this is that we have realistic barriers to education and hard work. Barriers such as cost, mental ability, program availability, and an unknown future demand can nullify the power of education. As we've grown into the information age, we've discovered that there will be thousands of jobs in the future for which we cannot know what the appropriate training will be because the job does not yet exist. It tends to make the world a very unpredictable and unstable place. This reality serves to nullify motivation. There has to be a different kind of a promise to base our lives upon. Well, we have a different kind of promise in 2 Peter 1.3. It says this, His divine power, notice the power formula is already there, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God promises that we can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires and become participators in the divine nature. What a promise. And it's his power that will deliver that for us. Some people lack vision because of a lack of a sense of calling. They have no sense of calling or destiny. Romans 8 tells us our destiny is to become like Christ. We will have an imperishable body in the resurrection that will forever glorify God. We have a destiny to live a life in which we find an interpretation of everything that happens in our life that shows that it's good. Second cause for living small is, is the no value factor. I want to recommend a couple of books that can help people who struggle with a sense of self-worth. One is called The Search for Significance by Robert S. McGee. The other is Lifetime Guarantee by Dr. William Gilliam. Let me quickly give you four basic reasons that people lack self-worth. First, we lack self-worth because we base our value on opinions of others. Galatians 1.10 talks about that. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so many people try to be people pleasers. And our sense of worth goes up or down based upon other people's opinions of us. And if people are pleased with us, then we feel like we have some worth. And if they are not pleased with us, then we feel worthless. A second one is we, 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 we base our value on our performance. And Galatians 1.14 addresses this. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. A second trap is this performance trap. We base our sense of self-worth upon how well we perform. And if we are performing really well, we feel really worthy. And if we perform poorly for whatever reason, we lose our sense of worth. A third one is be, because we, we seem so shameful to ourselves. Paul wrestled with this one as well. We discover that there is within us this sin nature that makes us do worthless things. We find that it is in, intrinsic to us and we're very limited in our power to control it 
in our own flesh. Romans 7, 20 through 24, it says, Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who hasn't dealt with that reality that man... There I did it again. I sinned again. I was told myself I wasn't going to do that anymore. And it might be flare-ups of temper. It, you know, it can be anything. Sinful behavior. And then, and then we feel worthless. Fourthly, we see no way to change what we are. And that's the last basic reason we struggle with a sense of self-worth is that we, we don't really see ourselves as redeemable. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Our vision of ourselves is that we are not the chosen ones. And we can't make ourselves get chosen. And we are inherently unchoosable and are powerless to do anything about that to change our status. The sum total of all these perspectives is that we can't see ourselves as worthy with any kind of intrinsic value. Our search for worthiness leads only to things that are false and not virtuous and unfulfilling. Things like self-righteousness and the need to put others down to raise myself up and manipulative control of others and pride in its worst manifestations and self-centeredness. Lastly, we live smaller than we could through a pattern of defeat. It's, it's a no-victory factor. We have the no-victory factor because we've failed in the past. The Bible makes it clear that we are sinners and can't do anything about that in ourselves. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we have a no victory factor because we do not see a way to have the power for success. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, uh, the, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Listen, it's not just a matter of intellect. So last week we were visiting with some friends up in South Dakota. And we were catching up and talking about our children and where they are. And they related that uh, their second son has a doctorate doing research. But he's so bought into the scientific model of everything that he's looking for proof of God. And he's walked away from the faith and they were devastated praying for him and we're going to pray for him too that he'll come to faith he was raised in the faith and has walked away we don't have a power for success in ourselves we're not sure what success really is 
We have so many different standards for trying to define what the successful life is. This is true whether we're speaking of material things or social things or psychological things or spiritual things. Paul says, you know, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greek looks for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And sometimes we have no victory because we cannot explain or grasp many things that are beyond our control. We don't know the victorious life because there are all these things that are simply beyond our control. We don't control other people. We can't control things like weather and natural disaster. We walk in a great deal of blindness in relation to the spiritual realm and the future, and therefore we must admit a great deal of powerlessness. The Greeks handled this by even seeking to worship a God that they figured out must be out there, but they had no name for him. And when Paul saw that statue to or that monument to the unknown God, he leaped on it and preached Christ. Why do these truths add up? What do these truths add up to in a person's life? They might look like dissatisfaction in a job. They often look like broken marriages in a culture. They look like a generation that can't make a decision about life direction. It, it makes any activity feel meaningless and fruitless. It, it creates in people a yearning for something to make them feel alive. I think all the extreme sports come out of this need. Uh, a great deal of the party scene comes from seeking to fill this need. And the sad thing is that none of those things will give a sustained sense of the abundant life that people sense they really need. So how do we gain the capacities to live lives that are larger than we are? This is found through a relationship with Jesus Christ in which we are in submission to his will and his purpose for us. After all, if God is the sovereign of the universe, then he has a place and a time and a purpose for everything in that universe. The greatest sense of fulfillment would be to knowingly fulfill your God-given purpose and place. Now what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers in this passage shows us how to ask God to work that knowledge into our lives. Look at the progression of this prayer. It's kind of like opening shells that nest in one another. The big shell is this request, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the desired end of that request is that you may know him better. So there's the big request. God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then the next smaller shell tells us the way the first shell will look when the request is answered. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know, that you may know. Well, what are you going to know? That's the little shells inside that second shell. Uh, the eyes being enlightened are three results in areas of knowledge, and each of these areas of knowledge is really a knowledge of him. And knowing him better, we'll know these three things. A hope to which he has called you. 
the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power toward us who believe. Those are the three things that, that we'll come to know as our eyes are opened. Getting, knowing the hope to which he has called us involves coming to a deeper and fuller knowledge of, first of all, a knowledge of his promises. His promises for you come in more than one form. There are promises that are general that he reveals for all believers, such things as the promise of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise of a resurrection body, the promise of the completion of our salvation, the promise of our perfection in Christ. These are promises that God gives to every believer, and they fill us with hope. But then there will be specific promises that God will apply to your life at particular times in your life. An example is I believe God promised me that he'll use me to give spiritual nurture to his flock from his word. I believe that as long as I'm abiding in Christ, God will give me insight into his word and use what I bring from it to feed the needs of the flock that he calls me to pastor or to uh, give direction for people who come to me for counsel. And where does it come from? It comes from God's word. A knowledge of God's promises to you will build your vision for what to do with your life. It'll give direction to your decision-making. Notice that there is a calling mentioned here. God calls every one of his children to salvation. He also calls us to righteousness. He calls us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He calls us to submission to his will. He calls us to walk by faith. He calls us to many things. And you can take the Beatitudes and discover eight callings of God. And you can take the fruit of the Spirit and discover nine callings of God. The generalization is this. When God calls you to something, it is because he wants to accomplish that in you. So when you recognize that God has called you to self-control... Don't give up the hope that you're ever going to know self-control because you have this predisposition to flare-ups of anger. God wants to produce self-control in you as a fruit of the Spirit, so you have the real expectation that somehow God is going to do that. Hope of calling gives you motivation to keep seeing yourself in a new way, to envision yourself as better or larger or more useful than what you are now. There can also be callings to vocation that God will give you. I believe this is true to every Christian, whether the vocation calling is ministerial or what we call secular. God made it very clear in his word that he gifted some people towards things that we would call secular things. Artists and builders and craftsmen in the Old Testament. It says, God filled these men, Oholiab and Bezalel, with all kinds of skill in these areas. And their best fit for serving God was to be craftsmen and builders. God can reveal these things to you. And you will have a new sense of purpose in your work when you see it as a calling of God. And then there is a knowledge of hope. Hope is the great vision maker in terms of creating emotional energy for the vision you get. Hope is produced when the promise and calling you see are connected to a power that is faithful and powerful enough to deliver the promise. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
God wants to give us a knowledge of hope so that we can have a vision, so that our activity and planning is purposeful and fits into a fruitful life. He gives that through revealing his promises and his faithfulness to us. So the second revelation of knowledge Paul wants these Christians to have is this. You are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, if we struggle with a sense of self-worth, we need to get an idea of how much God values us. He calls us his inheritance. His inheritance. The thing that would... uh, I, I, I... I'm going to give you a couple of ideas to help you grasp this. The thing that would be most valuable to somebody who could buy anything would be something that they couldn't buy at any price. And because God made us with a free will so that we're free to love him and accept his gift of righteousness and eternal life or not, that means he could not buy us. We are therefore treasured as something more valuable than anything he could purchase even though he owns everything. He can only woo us for our love and devotion. And he deserves it, and we lose out if we don't give it, but it's our choice. Therefore, he treasures us. He knows us and has chosen of his free will to value us for his own reasons that have nothing to do with merit. God is a collector of people, in a sense. He wants to surround himself with all kinds of people. Chris read the passage before of every tribe and nation. God wants some from every tribe and nation. Boy, he's a big collector. There's no real reason for you to need to collect, you know, any more of whatever it is that you collect. For me, I I collect neckties and hats. I will be embarrassed, but I'll tell you anyway, I probably have over 400 neckties and only one neck. (laughs) There's no good reason for all of that. Many of them have special meaning to me. Everyone's unique in its own way. That makes one in the collection valuable to me, even if they're not very valuable in anybody else's sight. So it is with God and people. God wants to have the largest people collection possible. And he has been collecting since he created us, and he has been paying a high price to get just what he wants. And it seems that often God likes to collect the broken ones and fix them. And some of you go, praise God, he did that for me. In the people-collecting hobby, that seems to make them even more valuable to God. God thinks more highly of us than we tend to think of ourselves. He sees us not just according to the fallen persons that we are, He sees us in terms of the transformation that he intends to work in us according to eternity. And because God is eternal, he can love us and accept us in our imperfect present as if we were already those perfect creations that he will make us in eternity. And we need to accept ourselves according to that knowledge of his love for us. 
And that will give us a sense of worth that will fill us with gratitude to God. It will also empower us with the confidence to attempt anything that he leads us into. The truth of the matter of this statement is that we are God's saints. We are his holy ones who have been redeemed. The redemption, this having been brought into the citizenship of heaven, the family of God, the generation of the righteous, the line of the children of promise, and any other term you can use to describe the benefits of belonging to God as opposed to not belonging to God, this is true of us. Knowing ourselves as redeemed ones rather than as fallen ones, condemned ones, children of wrath, makes all the difference in the world in regard to our self-image. And no sin uh, and self-image is empowering when it's true. It has been made true by Christ. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's viewpoint toward us. And we must gain the solid knowledge of this truth in our inner being if we are to live transformed lives. It is true by the declaration of God. We need to have the eyes of our hearts open to accept this truth as the reality of our self-image. In order for us to lay hold of the promises of God in a way that will change us, we we need to recognize and trust the power that can deliver on the promises. Paul goes into great detail about the power. He says it's the same kind of power that was exerted to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, how do we understand his power for a large life? The description of the power in the resurrection He says it's like the working of his mighty strength, and he uses four power words in this characterization. Power is dunamis, the natural ability of of a general and inherent nature. Working is energeia, operative power, power in its active exercise or working. Mighty is kratos, a manifested strength, the visible results of the power worked out. And strength is iskos, uh, strength or power as an endowment. If we were to get an idea of the differences of these things by talking about a, a power lifter, we would say dunamis was the genetics of natural ability that gave this person a predisposition to be strong and powerful. One of my sons is strong and powerful. I remember when I first started to recognize that. We were in Belmont, Iowa. He was about four years old. And I turned the corner to walk out in the hall, and he's at the ceiling. He walked himself to the ceiling with his feet against one of the walls and his hands against the other wall and walked himself to the ceiling. Hi, Dad. What are you doing up there? I could do this. Isn't this cool? Yeah. Takes a lot of strength through your whole body. When he was high school and playing football, he could bench 400 pounds. He had natural genetics of an ability that gave him strong and power. Energia is what we would witness whenever he did a feat of strength, such as lifting a heavy weight or, or pulling a bus. Kratos would be what we were seeing in the manifestation. The bus moved. The weight was up in the air over his head. And we recognized that strength was proven as real by that fact. 
And this is the additional power that would have come to this naturally endowed individual by the practice of lifting technique and building up his body through eating right foods and conditioning his muscles to be at the maximum lifting ability. In other words, he was strong, dunamis, to start with, but he gained in strength, iskus, by the endowment of nutrition and exercise energia. Paul says, verse 120, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. The power words applied to the resurrection. Christ was naturally able to have the power of life in him. Dunamis, John 1.4. And the resurrection itself in terms of the act of reclaiming life after having died was the working, the energia of the power of life over death. And this resulted in a factual manifestation of this power, Kratos, the fact that Jesus was walking around in a resurrected body. And then the endowment of even enhanced strength, iskus, of life is seen in the position Jesus holds at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. This speaks of the reality that Jesus is exalted with an endowed strength in the eternal realm. The life is an eternal physical, complete in every way life. It is this endowment of life strength that helps us trust that the resurrection that is promised for us will happen because he has the power to make it happen. So we see, first of all, that Christ's life force is of a superior nature to any other life force that we've ever seen. But his power goes even well beyond life over death power. It's possessed of an authority that is over all. Notice what it says in Ephesians 1.21. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. So the other kinds of powers that are listed here are rule or uh, uh, principality in the King James, Arche, it's literally a first one, a leader, and it refers to all the angels in the heavenly realms, both the holy angels and the demons. Jesus is over them all. And authority, uh, King James says power, exousia, it's a delegated authority. It also has reference to holy angels. And then there's power or might in the King James, dunamis, those with innate abilities and strengths and capabilities to accomplish things either in the heavenly realm or in the earthly realm. And then dominion, curiates, lordship. This categorization, categorization sweeps across the entire landscape of authority, including both the entire spiritual realm and the whole of earthly authorities of whatever kind. To drive the point home even further, his position is declared to be over any name that can be named or title that can be given. The idea is this. If there's some kind of new authority that's thought up and named, Jesus is over that too. And to broaden the scope of this even further, it takes in the dimension of time. Not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is over any authority that will come about after the end of time as we know it. That pretty much covers all the bases. But the good news of this greatness of power that Christ has gets even better. 
The focus of all this authority and power is toward the benefit of the church, the called out ones, those who have been called out from among the world to be part of the collection of God who is, is, who is meant by this. This is not a denomination. This is those who've trusted Christ as their Savior, anyone who's been born again, anyone who's received the gift of eternal life and been made a part of the forever family of God. That is whom all of this power is being exercised on behalf of. To the end, that the church will be filled up with God. God wants to be with us. He wants to fill us with himself. He has shaken heaven and earth with the greatness of his life force, conquering death through his son, Jesus Christ, in order to be able to deliver us to this life that is within him. So there are two questions that you have to answer in regard to these truths. The first is, have you received this gift of life from God? by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's the starting place. That's the starting place. And then the second question is, are you living in the abundance of His life by seeking the revelation of the Lord for vision and value and victory? Does your hope for meaning in life rest in His power and promise? If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can pray this prayer. I've got a copy of it on the back of the outline. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that my sins have separated me from the life that is in you. I understand that you died on the cross for my sin. Thank you for loving me. Just now I invite you into my heart and life. Come into me and give me the gift of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Thank you for your faithfulness and power to do what you promised. Amen. If you pray that prayer, you invite Jesus Christ to come into your life, to be your Savior. And he will do it. He will do it because he promised to. And maybe you say, you know, I've done that before. I did that when I was a kid. Um... But you'd have to say, you know, I, I don't know that I've been experienced, experiencing the abundant life, that life with direction and purpose that, that God wants me to have. Well, then you may want to pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I've been seeking to live by my own wisdom and experience. I confess that it makes my life empty and smaller than you would like to make it. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me wisdom and revelation within. Open the eyes of my heart to see your vision for me, your value of me, your victory through me. Fill me with the knowledge of these things so that I can live the life that you have ordained for me to bring glory to you. I ask this in willing submission to my Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to mention something in relation to that second prayer. It, it might be that, that somebody's here today and, and you prayed that prayer. 
and you're rededicating your life to Christ today. And it might be that uh, maybe you were baptized as a kid or as an infant. But you know you'd really like to seal that decision. Talk to pastor about the baptismal service coming up. Say, you know, pastor, I want to make it public that my life is about God directing it from this day forward. That's an appropriate use of the baptismal service. And uh, it's, it's fortuitous that uh, that's being planned. So just talk to pastor about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that uh, you value us far more than we can imagine. And that you want us to have lives that are fulfilling and fruitful unto your glory. You have things that you've prepared in advance for us to do that we may not even know. And yet you'll be glorified through them. We pray, Father, that you would work in each of our hearts in these ways. In thy name we ask it. Amen.